Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, And as you open there, uh, just to tell you a story about a time where I kind of fell in love with uh, a different music artist, uh, at least different than what I was used to. For three summers, I helped run an urban youth camp on the side of a mountain in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range in uh, very rural Colorado, and there were times where I would be driving on a dirt road for multiple hours where uh, the only living things I saw were antelope, uh, literally where antelope roam. Uh, they were running next to my car uh, one time, and somebody introduced me over the course of these summers to a man named Johnny Cash. Um, I fell in love with Johnny Cash listening to it driving through these prairies because why not, right? It's Johnny Cash, and it's the perfect, you know, old country western music to listen to when you are in such uh, settings. And so, um, no surprise, I found myself here over the Christmas holidays listening to Johnny Cash's Christmas album, uh, which, you know, it, it, it's its own flavor. It's that uh, kind of unique old country rasp that he has. And uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you're listening to your uh, music programs on whatever you listen to, if it's Spotify or Apple Music, but um, have you ever had it kind of change? You tell it, hey, I want to listen to, say, Johnny Cash's Christmas album. And then it tries to guess what you want to listen to afterwards, right? And so it'll keep playing, but uh, maybe it'll play a different version of Johnny Cash, uh, you know, not Christmas album. So uh, imagine listening to Johnny Cash, Joy to the World. It came upon a midnight clear. Oh, come all you faithful. Oh, holy night. And then all of a sudden the tone switches. And then you hear, I'm going to run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. <laughs> really? God's going to cut you down. That was one of Johnny Cash's songs. Or what if his song, When the Man Comes Around, comes on, and it says, The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in his sip and in his sup. Will you partake in that last offering cup or disappear into the potter's grounds when the man comes around? At that point, you probably quit listening, quite frankly. Um, But if you're wondering, what on earth is Johnny Cash talking about? Well, he's talking about the book of Revelation. He's talking about when Jesus returns. Johnny Cash is a fascinating study if you follow his life. He was the man in black, the man who in the 60s made famous the trashing of hotel rooms, uh, known for getting hopped up on pills and then driving his car as fast as as humanly possible. And then in 1967, walking into a cave in Tennessee uh, that was known to just stretch for miles uh, and walking for three hours saying, my plan is to not make it back out, is to get lost in the cave. And, And he did. And in the pitch black, the Lord got his attention. The Lord said, hey, I want you to get out of the cave and I have some work for you to do. And he got out and Uh, His mom and a friend were actually waiting outside of the mouth of the cave with a basket and saying, we just felt like we needed to come and meet you here. And his life just totally pivoted in that moment. He uh, repented, he turned to Jesus in faith, and and he followed him the rest of his life. He went to seminary, he studied God's Word, he became an ordained minister. And it was in the midst of that that not only did he love to sing songs like Amazing Grace, but he also wrote the two songs that I just referenced. He did so because he believed all of the Christian story. That there is amazing grace that isn't so amazing unless we understand the hard parts as well. How what Ward talked about from John 3.18, that all of us without Christ stand condemned. So here we are, we're in the next to last week of walking through the Christian story, and and we're almost to that last panel. Uh, Dave gets to close it out for us here next week, but, but this week we're on that thin line right before that row of fruit. 
We're in the part that I call the final battle of Avengers Endgame. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I don't want to spoil too much, although it's been out for a while. Um, but, but uh, you know, it, it's that time where you're watching and you know there's going to be a great battle. You know the Avengers are going to pull it off, but you're not quite sure how they're going to defeat Thanos. And you know that there's going to be this big epic battle with loss, right? And in a way, that's the part of the story that we're jumping in on today. And we're going to talk about this idea of judgment. Exactly what Johnny Cash was singing about. The reality is, friends, is we cannot understand or even read the Christian story without reading judgment throughout its pages. Think about it. From Genesis 3, sin enters the scene. What happens? There's judgment. They're removed from the garden. You've got Noah in the flood. You've got the ten plagues. You've got the cycles of, of judgment in the book of Judges. You've got what the prophets announce. You know who the primary teacher of judgment is, particularly in the New Testament? Jesus Himself. To miss judgment means to miss the amazing part of amazing grace. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment, do we? To our modern ears, we just want to stick our fingers in it and ignore it because it's hard. Because oftentimes when we think of judgment, we think anger. And we think anger is usually this unhinged abuse of power. But what God's Word sets before us is that judgment is very real and that God does get angry, but He does it, unlike us, without sinning. It's actually perfect and righteous. And so we're going to dive into the hard today. And the big idea that we're going to venture into is, you remember all the way back when we talked about the idea of covenants, how God Himself is not uh, a super soft grandfather. He's not this distant watchmaker who just sets something spinning and, and sent it off on its own. Well, today, hopefully, you will be convinced that those two pictures are totally false. What we see is God here actually being angry because He loves His glory. He loves His creation. He loves humankind. And sin and the enemy Satan has harmed what He loves. And He in His justice will make things right. So we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, and, and part of the effort in walking through the Christian story is to help us understand how to read our Bible. So i got to talk to you just briefly about Revelation and this idea of end times, because Revelation is a tricky book. It's a book unlike what is usually written in our culture today. It uh, has in it, uh, it's what we call apocalyptic literature, which means it's talking about end times, and it does it uh, with a ton of imagery. And it can make it really challenging to navigate. But, but let me just give you a hack in reading this book. Here's, here's the main thing you have to keep in mind. When you read the first words of this book, you understand exactly what you were to take from it. You go to Revelation 1.1, you'll see that this is a, a vision that John has that God gave him to write down in letters to seven churches. But do you know what the first phrase is? It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the book of Revelation. To reveal to you the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if we get so hooked on the imagery, the beast, the prophet, the mark of the beast, and, and the timing of everything, it's not bad that we look into that. But if that's what we walk away from the book of Revelation obsessing over, we've misread the book in its entirety. That is not at all what the book is about. The book is about our warrior Lord and Savior Jesus Christ come to make all things new. That's what the book is about. Now, let me also just touch on this. 
there are different views of the end times that people have in the church. And sometimes we kind of go to battle over it within the church. So let me give you some big words for a minute. Here's the four primary views of the end times. There's premillennialism. There's postmillennialism. There's amillennialism. And then there's dispensational premillennialism. I think I got that right. And in our denomination in the PCA, you will, you will find any mixture of those first three. Pre, post, and ah, right? So without going into what the differences are in between them, I just want to boil it down for you and say this. A Christian worldview of the end times must have these four things. And we are free to disagree on some of the finer points. But here's the acronym that I'd love to give you. It's called RULE, right? It's the rule of the end times for it to be a Christian worldview. And there's four things that are required. One is return. There has to be, for it to be a Christian worldview, a return of Jesus Christ who will one day set up his rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. If that doesn't happen, it's not a Christian worldview. There's up. Up is the dead will rise, right? So the dead in Christ and the dead who do not know Christ will rise and they will show up at the L, last judgment. And that last judgment would determine the E, the eternal destiny of all people, either eternity with Christ or eternity separated from Him. Those are the only four things that you've got to own. Now, I'm not saying don't investigate those, all the other views of the end times, but that's what's most important. Don't go to war with other Christians about the fine points of, that, of, of the different end times views. All right? So there's our brief summary. See? Revelation in about three minutes. Good. Let's pray and close. Um, <laughs> Let me actually pray. I would really love to do that before we jump into the text this morning. Lord, admittedly, especially the Sunday before Christmas, this feels really challenging. Yet in many ways, without this, Christmas isn't really that great. It's just a materialistic holiday where uh, we eat a lot of food. (laughs) Father, would you correct our hearts where that's where we drift towards and thinking that this is what Christmas is all about. And I pray that in our understanding of your righteous anger and wrath and judgment, that, Lord, Christmas would be all the more beautiful, that your sacrifice would capture our hearts in fresh ways. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak in and through me and in and through your word? Will you protect my words? And again, would you pull our hearts towards this unbelievable story of redemption and who you are, Jesus? We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so for those who keep score at home and follow along with the outline, we only have two main points. I I jettisoned the second, so uh, just preparing you for that uh, if you need some preparation. But the first thing we're going to look at are the final warnings that we see in Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to see that in verses 6 to 13. Let me read for you uh, the first two verses here, 6 and 7. And really, uh, what, what we see here, we see three angels announcing different aspects of what will happen when Christ returns. And it's kind of this moment of the British are coming, right? It's Paul Revere kind of giving this final warning before uh, this judgment and ultimate restoration and redemption come. And so here's what the first angel says. Pick up with me in verse 6. John says this in his vision, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. All right, so here's what the first angel is announcing. He's announcing a need for repentance. 
He's saying the final judgment is coming and you need to turn away from the false things that we worship and turn to the one true God. And he does it by walking through this story of redemption in reverse order. He starts off with the gospel. He says he's proclaiming an eternal gospel, this good news of Jesus. He's yelling it to the nation. See the grace of Jesus Christ. And he's saying this announcement is for, there in verse 6, every nation and tribe and language and people. And this is going back to Genesis 12, where God makes his covenant with Abraham. And he says, I I will bless you. You're going to be a blessing to the nations, right? That's what's in view here. And in that covenant promise, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so the blessing that we see here is the same blessing that show up in Revelation 7, where every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping Jesus Christ around the throne. But then here he's saying, if every tribe, those in every tribe, tongue, and nation don't turn to Jesus, that curse is real for them. And the ultimate call is going back to what we read in Genesis 1, a call back to worshiping the Creator, who in verse 7, made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Remember from the outset, the pull of the human heart is to de-God God, is to reject the Creator and worship ourselves or worship created things. And so the angel is yelling one final warning. Turn to the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second angel in the second announcement. We see this in verse 8. It says this, Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So what on earth is this second angel announcing? Well, Babylon, first of all, he's announcing the, Babel, uh, the fall, the downfall of Babylon. Now, Babylon at this point in 90 AD when John's writing it is a city that really is on the Tigris and Euphrates river system. And uh, at this point, it's just a little fishing village. Why on earth does a little fishing village need to fall? Well, if you go back into uh, the history of God's people, what you see is Babylon is actually uh, at one point, especially in about 500 B.C., is the world's superpower. Babylon is the nation that basically took God's people into captivity, that destroyed the temple in 587 B.C. Babylon tempted a lot of God's people's hearts to worship other gods. And when it says um, to drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, that, that word sexual immorality is adultery. And so what it's basically saying is, is, is Babylon stands as a symbol of... Um, Oh, I lost my notes. Of idolatry run amok that pulls God's people's heart away from him that God will one day eventually destroy. God's basically saying any God set up against the one true God will not stand. And to take, um, to take cover in one of those gods will lead to our ultimate demise. My mom and my stepfather uh, came to visit us in St. Louis. So if you ever want to not enjoy spring, move to the Midwest, move to St. Louis, where tornadoes hit like every other day. Uh, I learned that the hard way. And so my mom and stepfather, uh, so we've learned, you know, you, you do actually go to the basement when there's a tornado warning in the Midwest. And so uh, my, my mom and stepdad were staying at a hotel. And, you know, hotels are kind of paper thin. They don't have uh, easy basements to get to. And and there was one day where they had gone back to the hotel after we had hung out. And the sirens started going off, and we went down in the basement. I'm thinking, where, where's my mom going to go? Uh, and so we tried to call, and she didn't pick up. And 
anyway, she, she calls a little bit later, and she goes, we're never coming back in the spring ever again. And I was like, what happened? And she said, basically, we heard the sirens going off. We called the front desk, and she's like, where do we go? We're in this little paper-thin wall building. And they're like, I don't know. Maybe go jump in the tub or something, you know? And they did, and their thought in this is they're like, if this EF4 or 5 tornado hits this hotel, we're done. Right? There's no safety here. And that's what this angel is proclaiming. He's saying to anyone who would worship and give their lives and think their God will protect them, comfort, control, health, money, family, business, uh, a, a name, you know, a reputation, if you think any of that will protect in the day of judgment, you're wrong. It'll be like a flimsy hotel in an EF4 tornado. Here's the third angel in verses 9 and 10. It says this, Then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on its hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured in full strength into the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and sulfur and in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the lambs. And he goes up, goes on, and he says, This torment lasts forever. Well, what's this last angel announcing? It's judgment. It's ultimate judgment. When it says the beast will be judged, the beast is always in the book of Revelation referring to Satan, right? The beast and the dragon, a little bit interchangeable throughout. But the beast is Satan. It's God's enemy. And what we learned last week in Ephesians 2, if you remember, uh, we're following one of two leaders, one of two kings. We're either following the one true God, or Ephesians 2 says, we're following the prince of the power of this earth, of Satan himself. There is no Switzerland in the kingdom economy, no neutral countries. We're either following one ruler or we're following another. And when he says you'll experience wrath at full strength, poured out at full strength, well, what on earth is that talking about? Well, back then, uh, wine, when they made wine, it, was, it came out at about 30 proof or 15% alcohol. And in order to make it last, they would cut the wine with water. And so what he's essentially saying is, is, is this ultimate judgment uh, is not going to be the judgments like before where, that have been diluted. The plagues diluted. Babylonian captivity diluted. This is the real deal. And so, friends we often focus on the judgment itself. And what I do want to say is a part of the Christian story that we cannot escape is there is eternal judgment. There is a place called hell. But what this angel is doing and what is God is doing by sending this vision of the angels is warning people saying, stop, turn back, worship the one true God. Let me also touch on this idea of the mark of the beast. Because every generation has its mark of the beast theory. Uh, at one generation, it was a social security number. Oh, if you get a social security number, uh, you got the mark of the beast, and you're going to face hell. Um, credit cards, that was a mark of the beast at one point, right? If you get a credit card, it's the only way to spend money. Ugh, you know, things aren't going to go so well for you. Today, it's the vaccine. Today, the vaccine is the new mark of the beast. Some of you laugh, but it is, in Christian circles, it's, it's taking root. And so let me just clarify a little bit what the mark of the beast is. We, we don't know exactly what is being referred to here, but, but the mark of the beast is closely tied even here with the worship of, of the beast. It's saying they will worship the beast and they will receive the mark of the beast. And what the mark really is, is it's a mark of loyalty 
or devotion a mark of something we already are. And so Christians, if we are following after the God of the universe, should relax a little bit and not obsess over the mark of the beast. And I really would say, hey, think of the character of God himself. Do you really think God's going to slip something in, right, and say, ooh, I'm going to slip it in under a merciful vaccine, right, and, and trick half of my followers into getting it so that they spend eternity separated from me? Is that God's character at all? No. In fact, what we see here is God for thousands of years saying, stop, repent, turn back. He's not hiding some secret one-way trip to hell behind a rock in a vaccine somewhere so we can just slip into it. So please relax with that rhetoric, if that's some that you share. Again, if we leave the book of Revelation and we're obsessing over anything other than Jesus, we've misread the book. So here's the second point that I actually decided about an hour ago to cut out of the sermon. But as you read, you're going to see two harvests showing up in verses 14 to 21. There's a harvest of grain. Two, there's a harvest of grapes, which is really the grapes of wrath, right? If you've ever heard that phrase. And, And here's essentially what these two images are saying, just to give you the highlights. Uh, One is that the Christian story is actually going somewhere. The fact that there is a harvest means the world is not going to go on and on in a circle of life forever. It is totally different and set apart from views like Hinduism and incarnation that just means this, there is no purpose or real direction in the world. There is a teleological argument, they call it, of the direction of the world that tel- telos means there is a purpose or a goal. And so there is an end to this story that we are living in. The other thing that we see with these pictures of hell and these pictures of wrath is is it is imagery. It's hard for us to say, okay, what is hell and what does eternal judgment look like? And and, and it is imagery, but I do want you to know that it's not imagery of nothing. It does show the awfulness of final judgment on those who have spurned, forgotten, or rejected the grace of Jesus Christ. All right, Anthony, great Christmas sermon. Um, Here's the third point. Christmas and an angry Jesus. How on earth, why on earth did we go here today? Well, let me talk about this idea of Jesus and anger for a moment, but I want to start off talking about his compassion, first of all. And you'll see where I'm going with this in a moment. Uh, Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, I would commend it highly to you. I'm walking through it with a small group of guys uh, on Friday mornings, but he has one chapter that talks about the emotional life of Jesus. And, and he really puts these two pieces together of Jesus' compassion and anger as being two sides of the same coin. Let's talk about his compassion here briefly. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We see Christ's compassion throughout the rest of the New Testament as we read. We see Him healing lepers. We see Matthew 9 healing a paralyzed man and saying, take, take heart, rise up. Matthew 14, He had compassion and he, as He healed their sick. Mark chapter 6, 34, He had compassion as He taught. 
Mark 5, we see his compassion towards the bleeding woman, a woman who had been ostracized for 12 years. And he wasn't content with just her touching him and her being healed. He went back and sought her out and called her daughter. Something that she probably has not heard in 12 years. Jesus in Scripture is continually portrayed as compassionate. But as J.I. Packer would say, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes complete untruth. And so to talk about Jesus as simply being compassionate and not talk about the anger piece would actually be looking at an untrue or false Jesus Christ. It's clear even in the Gospels that Jesus gets angry. Here's one picture, Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I wouldn't say that out loud if you really felt that way about a person, right? Um, Be drowned in the sea? Really? But I think you'd get this if you thought about it for a second. I want you to imagine Todd Hill, our director of congregational care. His son, Ethan, right, is a little child taking their first steps. And he's like, Anthony. You know, Anthony and Sarah, my wife and I are there. He's like, Ethan will walk to you. Here, let's sit on the floor and, and Sarah, call him, right? She's like, come on, Ethan, come on, walk to me. And Ethan starts bobbing a little bit and I'm there off to the side. And all of a sudden I go, boom, and I just take his legs out. Little Ethan, bam, I'm sorry, Ethan, I wouldn't do that to you. Are you here? I would not trip you, bro. All right? All right. This is a metaphor or illustration here. But, but I bet you I would see Todd move faster than I've seen him move in a very long time in that moment right? He'd be angry. And we would say, he's probably right to. Jesus appropriately gets angry in that picture. Woe to the religious. In in Matthew chapter 23, it's woe after woe after woe, condemning the religious. Well, that's harsh, Jesus. But he's doing it because essentially what they're doing is is they're putting heavy weights on his kids. He says, shutting the doors of heaven to the Israelites. Jesus has a right to be angry. What about the one that people so often bring up to me when they're trying to defend their own anger, which I think is a false defense, but what about table-flipping Jesus? John 2.15, this is in the temple. He walks in, they're treating it as a shopping mall. He flips over tables. It says, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins and money changers and overturned their tables, right? Have you ever stopped and thought about that first picture? Making a whip of cords. Before he got angry, Jesus, flipping tables... It was quiet, Jesus, in the corner making a whip. Really? Wow. Why on earth would that be a right thing for Jesus to do? Well, think about what was happening. The temple was a place where sinners could come and offer sacrifices and enjoy fellowship with God, to pray to God for the expansion of the gospel to the nations and receive assurance of His favor and grace. And they turned it into a shopping mall. How many of you feel close to God in a shopping mall? Maybe a couple of you, I don't know. But, but the, you get the point. How about this one and the last example of Jesus getting angry? This is uh, Lazarus when he goes to the tomb and Lazarus has died and he's looking back at Mary and Martha weeping. And it says this, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That term deeply moved is technically the word indignant, which means showing anger. Right after this, it says Jesus wept. What preceded Jesus weeping? His anger at death. 
B.B. Warfield in the person and work of Christ says it beautifully when he looks at this passage. He says, indistinguishable fury seizes upon Jesus. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. What John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against his foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. How does Jesus' compassion and his anger fit? How do those two things go together? Well, as Warfield just said, it would actually be a contradiction for a morally perfect human such as Christ to not be angry at sin and death. We often fear that if we emphasize one, we will neglect the other. But what Ortland and what Warfield would say is they both anger and compassion rise and fall together. And for those of us who are totally appalled at the murder of George Floyd, we actually get this. In that moment, we both felt intense anger and a sense of justice and compassion, didn't we? And if we in our brokenness and broken angry, angry responses give ourselves permission to be angry and judgmental and compassionate, why don't we extend that to God, who is perfect and righteous and holy? Christmas without judgment is like Santa behind plexiglass. One of my friends from down south said, hey, right after Thanksgiving, my friends started sending out pictures of their children with Santa in the mall, and it was Santa sitting in his chair behind a piece of plexiglass. Ha! <laughs> That's funny, right? That's not Christmas at all, is it? Santa tucked back there safely. In fact, I think a better picture of what Christmas really is is something that was burned into my memory when I was a young man and one of my uh, friend's father, who was one of the most compassionate, loving, generous, mild-mannered people that I had ever met, got news one day that his daughter, my friend's sister, was in an abusive marriage. I saw that compassionate man get in the car and drive as fast as he could and get in the son-in-law's face. I would not have wanted to be there that day. And then in that same moment of anger, he grabbed his daughter in compassion and said, get in the car. You're coming with me. Friends, Jesus' anger and judgment reveals that he loves his creation too much to remain indifferent. He is holy and he is just. And his compassion shows us that what Christmas is all about is him running through the plexiglass of safety, light coming into a dark world that would eventually lead to his murder on the cross to pay that penalty of judgment on our behalf. To forget that part is to put Santa behind plexiglass. I asked my mother-in-law this week to pray. I was like, pray, I'm doing a sermon on judgment right before Christmas. And she said this. She said, a judgment... A judgment message before Christmas is okay as long as you also mention God's scandalously extravagant rescue plan from judgment initiated at Christmas. So friends, don't miss his extravagant, his, his scandalously extravagant rescue plan to rescue you 
from judgment. Turn to him in faith. Hear the angel's warnings. And then for my friends who find themselves angry, and may even use Jesus as an excuse to be angry, let me just say this, and this is a quote from Dane Ortland. Let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted, for it is an anger that springs from his compassion for you. In that knowledge, release your debtor and breathe again. Let Christ's heart for you not only wash you in his compassion, but also assure you of his solidarity and rage against all that distresses you, most centrally, death and hell. That's the message of Christmas. Let me close this in prayer. Father, even in this time of pandemic, it struck me this week that your anger is fanned into flame because the reason sickness and death exist in this world is because of the rebellion against you. Lord, help us to hear your warning. Help us to see your anger as your righteousness and your holiness. Help us to see that as you not being indifferent to our suffering, but you being willing to enter into it. Maybe this year more than ever before, may you focus our hearts on the real meaning of why the light had to come into the darkness. That you didn't come into the world to condemn the world, that the world stood condemned. But Lord, you came nevertheless to give yourself for us so that we may have hope at Christmas. We love you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.